Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Beauty and Breaking, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for April 3rd, 2022, the fifth Sunday in Lent. What does love smell like? What does hope smell like? What does resurrection smell like? On this fifth Sunday of Lent, as we draw closer to Jesus' final week, and prepared to contemplate his suffering, we're invited into a story of the senses, a story of love enacted in fragrance. All four Gospels tell it, the story of a woman who kneels at Jesus' feet, breaks an alabaster jar filled with priceless perfume, and dares to love Jesus in the flesh. Hands to feet, hair to skin, soaked fingers to soaked toes. Each writer frames the event differently to suit his own thematic and theological concerns, but the story at its core remains one of the most sensual, tender, and provocative in the New Testament. In John's version, the woman is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and the newly resurrected Lazarus. The two sisters host a dinner party for Jesus, and it's during the festivities that Mary breaks open her jar, anoints Jesus with spikenard, a scented oil worth a year's wages, and wipes his feet with her hair. As the musky fragrance of the oil fills the house, Judas, the disciple who keeps the common purse, rebukes Mary for her scandalous generosity. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? But Jesus silences him. Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Mary's is a layered story that raises thorny questions about poverty, piety, and stewardship. But it's also a powerful story of a woman who dares to love extravagantly, even in the face of ridicule and censure, and receives the blessing of Jesus. Here are three aspects of the story I particularly cherish. Mary leans into embodiment. What happens between Jesus and Mary in this narrative happens skin to skin. Mary doesn't need to use words. Her yearning, her worship, her gratitude, and her love are enacted wholly through her body. Just as Jesus later breaks bread with his disciples, Mary breaks open the jar in her hands, allowing its contents to pour freely over Jesus' feet. Just as Jesus later washes his disciples' feet to demonstrate what radical love looks like, Mary expresses her love with her hands and her hair. Just as Jesus later offers up his broken body for the healing of all, Mary offers up a costly breaking in order to demonstrate her love for her Lord. What I appreciate most about this story is the way Jesus responds. Rather than shunning Mary's intimate gesture, Jesus receives her gift into his own body with gratitude, tenderness, pleasure, and blessing. The holy sacraments here are skin, salt, sweat, and tears. The instruments of worship are perfumed feet and unbound hair. This is not an abstract piety of the mind. This is deeply embodied gratitude and worship. What does this mean for us, I wonder, as we live in cultures that often treat bodies with ambivalence and shame? Most of the time I see my own body as something to shrink or tame. I see its flaws so much more clearly than I see its God-ordained dignity and beauty. Rarely do I recognize it as a vehicle for worship, love, hospitality, and grace. But Mary's gesture reminds me that if I won't see my own body as God's temple, if I won't embrace it as delightful to its creator, I won't be able to embrace anyone else's. We are people of the Incarnation, called to break bread, share wine, shed tears, and wash feet. 
During this Lenten season, can we learn to see our embodied lives as fully implicated in our lives with God? Can we move past shame and fear and offer God our whole selves? Mary honors beauty. In Mark's version of the story, Jesus tells Mary's critics that her gesture is a beautiful thing, worthy of honor and remembrance. Over and against Judas's pragmatism, Jesus celebrates the fragrant and the delectable. In doing so, he gives us permission to savor the good gifts of life on this fragile, fertile earth, the pleasures of our senses, the beauties of nature, and the fruits of human creativity and artistry. I didn't grow up, grow up in a Christian tradition that put much stock in beauty, liturgical or other. If anything, beauty was viewed with suspicion as frivolous and distracting. Real piety resided in sound doctrine and firm faith. So I'll be honest, Judas's criticism gives me pause. Shouldn't we be sensible, spare, cautious? Shouldn't we be guided by our creeds, our strategic plans, our bottom lines? Aren't we supposed to balance our budgets? No, not always. Not at the expense of the life-giving and the beautiful. Is Mary's gift lavish? Yes. Is it useless in the practical-minded economy Judas brings to the table? Yes. Is it efficient, orderly, or logical? No. And yet Jesus cherishes and blesses it. As writer Mary Gordon puts it, in the moment of the washing of the feet, Jesus insists that beauty matters, that the aesthetic can take precedence over the moral. Think about it this way. In times of peril, pain, or trouble in your own life, what has comforted you the most? What has carried you through? The platitudes of a pragmatist or the lavish and useless gestures of someone who loves you? Mary recognizes the importance of meeting the world's brokenness, cynicism, and pain with priceless, generous beauty. Even as death looms, she chooses to share what is heartbreakingly fragile and fleeting, a fragrance, a sensory gift, an experience of beauty. Her perfume is her protest. Her scented hands are her declaration. In anointing Jesus in beauty, she declares that the stench of death will not have the last word in our lives. The last word will belong to the sweet and sacred fragrance of love. Mary treasures the moment. Jesus responds to Judas's criticism with a comment that might sound callous. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What is Jesus saying here, that the poor don't matter? That we should accept poverty as inevitable and unfixable? I don't think so. In fact, many commentators argue that Jesus' reference here is to Deuteronomy 15.11, whose message about poverty and generosity is crystal clear. There will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you to be open-handed. In other words, the call to care for the poor is constant. It never ceases. In fact, if we are called to love Jesus without limit or calculation when he is with us, then we are called to the same limitless and uncalculated extravagance when the poor are with us, which is always. So what is it about Mary's extravagance that merits Jesus' blessing? And what is it about Judas's criticism that earns Jesus' rebuke? Mary responds to the call of love in the moment, in the now, knowing what Jesus is about to face, knowing that he's in urgent need of companionship, comfort, and solace, Knowing that the time is short to express all the gratitude and affection she carries in her heart, Mary acts. Given the choice between an abstracted need, the poor out there, and the concrete need that presents itself at her own doorstep or on her own dinner table, Mary chooses the here and now. She loves the body and soul who is placed in her presence. In doing so, she ends up caring for the one who was denied room at the inn, even to be born, 
for the one who has no place to lay his head during his years of ministry, for the one whose crucified body is laid in a borrowed tomb. In other words, it is the poor Mary serves when she serves Jesus, just as it is always Jesus we serve when we love without reservation what God places in front of us here and now. Lutheran minister Reagan Humber puts it this way, What won't always be with us is the opportunity to see God in whatever and whomever stands in front of us right now. The kingdom of God is here. Right now is the moment when God can break our hearts. The love of God is the grace of now. What does love smell like? What does hope smell like? What does resurrection smell like? They smell like beauty broken and spilled out for the sake of love. So much is given to us in this gospel story. What will we do with it all as we set our faces towards Jerusalem? Will we choose the measured risk or the extravagant gesture? Will we celebrate useless gestures as sacred to God? Or will we hold our hearts back in judgment and cynicism? What will guide us as we contemplate the cross, the theological platitude, or the fragrance of Christ? That very important jar we're hanging on to at all costs, when and for whom will we break it? The time is short, the cross awaits, pain is coming. For this moment, though, we have Jesus. What will we do while we still have him with us? For Books This Week, Dan reviews Why I Would Have Killed Jesus and You Might Have Too by David Nelson. This small but powerful book by the Episcopal priest David Nelson is an extended thought experiment about a question that I have asked myself. How would I have responded to Jesus if I had lived in his day and seen him up close and personal? Nelson recounts how he actually had the weirdest dream to this effect in which he met five tentative followers of Jesus who became his sworn enemies. And mind you, these were good people, each in their own way. Deborah was a young widow who hated the corrupt and oppressive Romans. At first, Jesus seemed to promise revolution. He exhibited a warrior spirit, but then... He meekly accepted the Roman occupation, which in her view was the ultimate betrayal. The fisherman Shem always dreamed of something big, and at first Jesus seemed to offer this with all the massive crowds, healings, miracles, and spectacles. But then he would disappear into the desert by himself and talk about self-denial. So it's no wonder the crowds turned on him. Sarah was attracted to Jesus until that terrible day when he enraged the good people of our synagogue by accepting Gentile outsiders. It's almost as though he liked our enemies. The Roman soldier, Maximus Gallus, had committed himself to law and order, and so he hated the disobedient troublemaker Jesus. Fortunately, he was crucified for his crimes, although his brainwashed followers continued to cause more trouble. Aaron of Arimathea was a pious Pharisee who hated how the false teacher Jesus twisted the scriptures, criticized the righteous, and even embraced notorious sinners. Nelson's disturbing dream shattered his complacency and raised a terrifying possibility of whether he would have acted like these five characters. Would he have welcomed the death of Jesus? He reminds us that Jesus was a dangerous and divisive figure in his day. In Luke 9, there are three seekers who are eager to follow Jesus until they hear his stark demands. In John six sixty six, we read how many disciples turned away from Jesus and stopped following him. There are times, says Nelson, when Jesus threatens our deeply held values, including social status, biblical interpretation, patriotism, wealth, family, and more. The gift of this book is that it disabuses us of the comforting illusion of a sentimental Jesus. For films this week, Dan reviews The Berrigans, Devout and Dangerous.
According to J. Edgar Hoover, the Jesuit priests and brothers Philip and Daniel Berrigan were public enemy number one for their crimes against the state, and so he placed them on the FBI's most wanted list for their many acts of civil disobedience against the Vietnam War and nuclear weapons. As a consequence, both of the Berrigans spent 50 years in and out of jail for their unwavering commitment to peace, dissent, resistance, and direct action. Dan Berrigan was once asked how many times he had been incarcerated for the gospel message of peace. He responded, apparently not enough. For 11 of his 29 years of marriage, Phil was separated from his wife, Elizabeth McAllister, by one or both of them serving time in prison. Stokely Carmichael once called Phil the baddest white man in America for his principled and progressive protests of racism. From the Berrigans' perspective, the Johnson and Nixon administrations were committing crimes against humanity. The Berrigans, as his 80-minute documentary puts it, were thus both devout and dangerous. They were featured on the cover of Time magazine, January 25, 1971, as rebel priests, the curious case of the Berrigans. This film does a wonderful job of curating massive amounts of archival video and photography of those tumultuous years, much of which is of the Berrigans telling their own story. Additional interviews and commentary are provided by the likes of Howard Zinn, Martin Sheen, Jim Wallace, Daniel Ellsberg, and members of the Berrigan family. For more on the Berrigans, see Bill Wiley Kellerman's Celebrant's Flame, Daniel Berrigan in Memory and Reflection. And finally, for poetry this week, Comfort Animal by Joy Layden from the sequence Shekinah Speaks. Comfort, comfort my people. A voice says, your punishment has ended. You never listen to that voice. You really suck at being comforted. Another voice says, cry. That voice always gets your attention, keeps you thinking about withered flowers and withering grass and all the ways you're like them. Hard to argue with that. Death tramples you, an unhousebroken pet trailing prints and broken stems, pooping anxiety, PTSD, depression. It's better to be animal than vegetable, but best of all is to be spirit, flying first or maybe business class with your emotional support animal, your body curled in your lap, soaring with you above the sense of loss you've mistaken for the closest to God you can get. You want to cry? Cry about that. Who do you think created the animals to whom you turn for comfort? Dogs, miniature horses, monkeys, ferrets, hungers you know how to feed, fears you know how to quiet. I form them, fur them. It's my warmth radiating from their bodies, my love that answers the love you lavish upon them. Your deserts and desolations are highways I travel, smoothing your broken places, arranging stars and constellations to light your wilderness. Sometimes I play the shepherd, sometimes I play the lamb, sometimes I appear as death, which makes it hard to remember that I am the one who assembled your atoms, who crowned your dust with consciousness. I take you everywhere, which is why wherever you go, I'm there, keeping you hydrated, stroking your hair, laughing when you chase your tail, gathering you to my invisible breasts more tenderly than any mother. You're right, you never asked for this. I'm the reason your valleys are being lifted up, the source of your life laid bare. Mine is the voice that decrees, that begs your anguish to end. When you suffer, I suffer. Comfort me by being comforted. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 3rd, 2022. 
I'm Debbie Thomas.